Welcome to the first episode of the National University of Singapore Middle East Institute podcast series titled Boots of the Ground, Security in Transition from the Middle East and Beyond. In this podcast, we look at the future of warfare. We will see uniformed soldier or boots on the ground being replaced by private military companies, autonomous weapon system and cyber weapon. My name is Alessandro Arduino and I will be the co-host for the series, along with my colleague. Hello, I'm Amin Lutfi. I will be the co-host, and we're very excited today to start off our series with Dr. Sean McFate. Dr. Sean McFate is a man of many talents, veteran, novelist, foreign policy expert, academic, national security strategist, and also a former private military contractor. Let's say he has done it all. Currently, he is bunkered down as a professor of strategy at the National Defense University and Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. We are very enthusiastic to have him with us today to talk about his latest book, New Rules of War, Victory in the Age of Durable Disorder, and more broadly, about market for force and changing nature of war. Sean, thank you for joining us today. It's great to be with you. So let's start with the first question, Sean. We are living in an extraordinary times, characterized by a fast changing world. The Middle East and the overall global security architecture is in transition and transformation. In your book, you talk about this future, let's say you have a little durable disorder. Can you tell us a little bit about what that means it is, uh, let's say, a temporary moment in history, or is something that we are in for the long run? It's a great question. So many of us, when we think about the world that we learned about in grade school as children, we learned that nation states ruled the world, only their militaries can fight wars, only they can make international laws, and that this has been universal and timeless forever. But that's not true. Most of the history of world order is not with states, it's with a variety of players. And they fight wars a variety of ways, including mercenaries, which are the oldest, some would say the second oldest profession. The, the idea of, of nation states as the ruler of the world and world order, that only, that's a very recent concept. It's only about two or 300 years old. Some would say it started after the 30 years war in Europe that ended in 1648. And the world that followed had nation states with national armies ruling over everything. And the idea that we're going, that that world is ending and we're going back to a, to well, I would say normal. We're going back to what happened before that period of time. And what does that look like? It looks like durable disorder. Think of like the Middle Ages in Europe or much of Africa or South Asia for its history. It's not nation states ruling the world. It's, it's a lot of different. It's like aristocracies, it's uh, city states, it's empires, which are not nation states. It's a variety of things. And we are, the, the world is, going back to what I call durable disorder because it's not the uh, order of nation states, but it doesn't implode like 
anarchy. It's not Mad Max and the Thunderdome, which is sometimes how it's portrayed as, as pure chaos and anarchy. It's something in between, and that's called durable disorder. Uh, I mean, I'm glad you brought it up, um, uh, this idea of uh, this chaotic world, um, because you suggested that, that, you know, that I've, I mean, there's other people who've, who've talked about this idea that we're this 20th century age of rule-based order, it's over and we're now in this new age of disorder. But where your work kind of sets apart, as you said, look, there will be disorder, but it won't be like completely chaotic. And there's certain what you set out to do in your book is you give out these set of rules. And you suggest that rulers of states or, or sort of leaders, as long as they take them into consideration, you can keep your head above the water, in, even in these times of chaos. But these rules that you set out, they're not anything like what, you, what we think of in the 20th century as international law or laws. These are, these are something else. These are more guiding principles. Can you tell us more about what these means and if can we really have any sets of rules in a time when things are changing so rapidly and especially when we would have war that's almost endless? It's a lot there to, to unpack. Well, first of all, in the, the world of durable disorder, all I'm saying, I'm not saying that states are going to disappear. I am saying that they're, they're contracting. Uh, many parts of the world, states are state to name only, uh, like Sub-Saharan Africa, parts of the Middle East, uh, and also that, that states, the borders of a lot of states, they came, they were not natural evolutions of polities on the ground. They, they came from European 19th century imperialists, whether it's the Sykes-Picot in 1916 or the Berlin African scramble, the late 19th century. A lot of the states that we see are, are completely artificial uh, and they're just imploding. And so, but, but a lot of the places in the world, states will remain strong, uh, East Asia, North America, West Africa, other parts in between. But here's the deal, as states, as we think about them, start to, to regress in much of the world, the global environment's changing. It's no longer states in control. Now the world stage is very crowded with super rich, super powerful, very, a lot of non-state actors, not just terrorists, but, but the Fortune 500 are more powerful than most states in the world. And so this is going to change international politics and it's changing warfare as we know it. Um, because if you have non-state-centric warfare, what does that look like? And national capitals of big countries cannot fathom this. Like Washington DC cannot fathom this. London cannot fathom this. Um, but you know, uh, CEOs can fathom this. Terrorist groups can fathom this. So what does war look like in a, in a post-state-centric century? And that's what the book, The New Rules of War, lays out. And it offers 10 new rules of war. And this is how war will be fought and won in the future. And it will make a conventional warrior's head explode. Thank you, Sean. You just mentioned that, that mercenary is the second oldest profession. I'm not going to ask you what is the first. Let's say in your book, uh, one suggestion that you have for winning wars uh, among these 10 rules that you just mentioned in this new world is forming a kind of foreign legion on the same line of the French foreign legion. 
but for countries that uh, have a, a purely defensive stance, uh, let's say like Singapore, is there any role for private military security? Well, the, the second oldest profession, mercenaries, uh, uh, has been, frankly, it was the most private history is private military history from the Bible to the Romans to Middle Ages and Europe to you name it. And never was there any sort of stigma attached to hiring uh, what Game of Thrones would call sellswords, right? And, um, and that, that's a recent thing where states in, by 1850 drove mercenaries underground. They never disappeared, and they started to reemerge after the Cold War. And now they're back in full swing. Uh, and we're once again in a, in a world, just like most of world history, in durable disorder with private warfare. And think of private warfare this way it's like Clausewitz, the, the military theorist who's the king of conventional war, like World War II, World War I, meets Adam Smith the theorist of capitalist economics. And when you blend military strategy with market strategy, that's mercenary warfare. And our four stars are absolutely not ready. They don't understand this. It's, it's like explaining color to an earthworm. They do not understand. So here's, and, and look at the United States. They've, they've experienced this in Iraq and Afghanistan. They've leaned heavily on what they call private military contractors, which are really just mercenaries for the most part. I mean, they're, they're, they're armed civilians in wars in foreign war zones who work for profit and they're trigger pullers, right? And, um, and the US, here's what we learned. If you wanna, if you're a, a rich country that wants to wage war, but doesn't wanna bleed, doesn't wanna bleed with your own citizens, what you do, you have, you have a couple, couple options. One, and they're all terrible options. One is that, uh, look at the United States and Iraq. They could have, they have an all-volunteer army. And when they realized that this war would not, in Iraq would be short and easy as Donald Rumsfeld, the Secretary of Defense, promised, they could have either left Iraq and conceded defeat to the terrorists, Al-Qaeda, which was unthinkable. They could have forced the United States population to serve in the war like Vietnam by having a Vietnam-like draft, which is also politically untenable. Or they could hire contractors to fill the billets. And that's what they did. Um, and that leads to all sorts of problems because it creates a labor pool. Like I was in this industry, most of the people in this industry were not Americans. They were foreigners fighting American wars for money. Um, and now we've gotten to a point where if America wants to, to wage war abroad, they either have to have boots in the ground like Iraq, which nobody wants to do, or they have to have proxy militia, which are unreliable because they have their own self-interest, or they hire contractors. And that's what we have today in Afghanistan. There's like a three-to-one ratio of contractors to troops. Um, so what I suggest, this is not good for a lot of reasons, because if you hire contractors, they don't have any law, like if a contractor kills a family of Afghanis someplace, and that contractor is say just from like Uganda, I'm making this up, where are they tried? Are they tried in Afghanistan? Probably not. Are they tried in Uganda? Probably not. Are they tried in the United States? Probably not. They're tried nowhere. So 
and the same is, is even more so for proxy militia, I think, to make human rights violations. So if you, if what I suggest in my book, and this is a very long answer to your good question, is if we have a foreign legion, we could have accountability. And so let me back up. When you think of a foreign legion, what do you think about? You think about French mercenaries and Jean-Claude Van Damme, right? But the, foreign, the French Foreign Legion are not mercenaries. What the French Foreign Legion are, they're a, an element of the French army that has, they answer only to Paris with French chain of command and French officers and French doctrine, but they're enlisted are from all over the world. And they enlist and if they serve a career, they get French citizenship. And their interests are forever united with France. And they are, they are, there's accountability for French legionnaires under French military law. And so there you get the benefits of having, you know, what, what contractors bring meets the reliability of a national army. And the United States of America needs the same thing. If they want to, you know, if they want to project power abroad and they don't want to have U.S. Marines coming back in body bags, then they should think about the idea of a French Foreign Legion because it gives you the punch of contractors and mercenaries, but gives you the control of the U.S. Army and U.S. Marine Corps. And that's why I suggest we should think about an American Foreign Legion. I see. As you mentioned, I'm looking at the terms that you just used that come more from a corporate headquarter than from a battlefield. Use the term industrial, this industrial labor pool. So uh, following up on this, uh, I think that in the near future, if every strategist is looking at uh, having a French Foreign Legion kind of army, is this going to ignite a race, uh, let's say a competition between countries trying to poach uh, the best and highly trained soldier? It's a great question. And that's the type of strategic thinking we need to think about, right? So. Uh, first of all, I, I don't think that countries should rely exclusively on a foreign legion. The foreign legion should augment national forces. Um, but there's examples of the UAE who rely heavily on contractors slash mercenaries right now. Uh, and yes, it will ignite uh, a market for force where the richest will get the best troops. But can money buy loyalty? Safety and accountability has always been the bane of private warfare, not just for employers, but also for mercenaries. Um, you know, both mercenaries and the masters have a history of ripping each other off. And this creates problems because, as you well know, mercenaries historically are incentivized to start and elongate wars for profit. So a world with more mercenaries is a world with more warfare. Can I ask a follow-up with a related question? I mean, it's a, the, you, you have the suggestion even in trying to, the question of um, maybe not controlling, controlling is a bad question, but sort of um, uh, somewhat setting the boundaries for mercenary. You said like law might not be the best way to do it, but a better way would be through the market itself. This idea of super buyers that you suggest that once you have some super buyers in this mercenary market, then you can also read out some of the bad characters from the good ones. Um, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, so I think like United States, for example, 
when it was the, the apogee of the Iraq and Afghanistan war, it was, it was a sugar daddy uh, client in town. Um, they had market power and they could, they, the United States could have dictated the norms of private warfare, but it didn't, it did not. And now, and when the US left Iraq and Afghanistan, then suddenly uh, all these private military contractors who used to wear the US flag now seek new clients. And that's, you know, the, the problem is the United States thinks of private military contractors as second class reservists. They don't think of them as actual, you know, uh, private maximizing entities. And that's the problem. Um, so, you know, if we're trying to, if we're going to try to curb the market for force, which is emerging rapidly in the 21st century, well, I don't think international law is going to do anything because who's going to go into Yemen or Nigeria or Syria or Venezuela to arrest all those mercenaries? Not the United Nations, not the U.S. military. Nobody's going to do it. And if anybody does do it, mercenaries can shoot your law enforcement dead. When you commodify conflict, it's the one commodity that can resist law enforcement. They can shoot your law enforcement dead. So the better way to control this emerging market is one, stop denying it exists. It, it's here, it's, it's resurrected, and it's as old as history itself, the history of warfare itself. Second, if you wanna shape it, you have to use market mechanisms. You have to incentivize good behavior and disincentivize bad behavior. And how do you disincentivize it? You bankrupt those bad mercenaries. But right now, we, it's the wild west in American literature. It's like it's it's like cowboys. It's like cowboys and Indians right now. And this is a very this is like the worst case trajectory we can be on in the early twenty first century. Uh, as you just mentioned, uh, you will need to use market rule to, let's say, not at least uh, coordinate or constrain mercenary, but at least make it more viable. Then uh, that takes me uh, to the issue of cost. Uh, you argue that mercenary army are economically efficient for state. Uh, if I recall correct, there was an Italian chap that was saying that mercenary and an unnecessary cost during peacetime, but they are prone to flee just uh, when the real danger hits. And that guy yeah. was Niccolo Machiavelli. Yeah, so first of all, Machi well, Machiavelli, um, who I'm a big fan of, Mer Machiavelli has, as we'd say in America, sour grapes. He was burned horribly by his mercenaries because he was such a poor manager of mercenaries. In Florence's wars against Pisa, a much smaller city-state in 1500 and 1506, he was a senior sort of defense diplomat or, you know, uh, and, and they, they, in, they were so bad, the Florentines were so bad and so that worked in the mercenaries that the Pisans bought out 10 of the mercenary captains who showed up in game day and defected. And so forever, and this eventually led to Florence, the Free Republic of Florence's demise in 1512, because idiotic Machiavelli, whom I love, but in some sense he's idiotic because he's like, we're gonna have our, our own militia who are loyal only to us. And, you know, fair enough, in 1509, his Florentine militia farmers had some, vict some tactical victories, but when they started to stand up against true uh, Spanish, in this case, mercenaries, they got obliterated. And that's one of the reasons why 
the free republic of Florence fell is because of Machiavelli's complete inept militia. And so the, the point of the story is this, is that when you want specialized skills, you can turn to a market that can offer you specialized skills and it can be cheaper in the short run. It's like renting a car is cheaper than owning one, right? In the short run. But if you use a car every day, it makes sense to own your own car. And more importantly, the thing about mercenaries is this, is that they can give you, look at America and Iraq and Afghanistan. They sort of create, they help catapult the current mercenary market for force, not deliberately. By overusing these mercenaries, it, in the short run, it gave them some operational advantages. They could have a, they could have a surge of boots on the ground that were not American, which was politically expensive, shall we say. They could have turned to the market, but when they were done with them, what they've created in the long term was a labor pool of mercenaries that are now showing up in Yemen, in uh, the Middle East, in, in West Africa, in Somalia. So in the short run, it might be cost effective to use mercenaries, and it kind of is, but in the long run, it creates problems not just for that country, but for the entire region and for security at large that are that destabilize entire regions and create sort of a an arms race of mercenaries, even at, at worst case scenario. It, you speak of all of these from um, a closer perspective, I think, than most people can offer. Um, and I, I was reading your book and you mentioned what you did during one of your summers during grad school. And it immediately reminded me, you know, when I was in graduate school, um, I would wake up in the summer doing during field work, trying to call all my contacts. Some would say no, some would say yes, and I'd finally find them. You had a very different, completely different experience. You went from raising an army in Liberia to stopping uh, uh, almost a genocide in Burundi. Um, can, you, can you tell us more about that side of your career? Or yeah. Your experience and how, that, how, does, how does that even play into your academic work? Does that give you kind of critical insight into this field? So I, I actually did a lot more than that, but I can only write about some of it, right? So like, I'm, I'm not your typical academic. I, I, um, I went to uh, I, I went to Brown University and Ivy League University in the United States, but I, I left. I, I graduated and went to the 82nd Airborne Division. When a, it's a, I was a U.S. Army paratrooper and officer in a coveted unit in the U.S. military. Um, my commanders were Stanley McChrystal, David Petraeus, way before they became generals. And I left, uh, uh, and I sort of what some would say went to the dark side. I became a private military contractor. But there was this time in between where I did two very interesting things. One, I worked for Amnesty International, an NGO of human rights uh, in Washington, DC. I did not many people knew about my actual military background. My interest was that there's a lot of commonality on the ground between what the military wanted to do, what human rights people wanted to do. And I was trying to bring, naively, I was trying to bring the headquarters, if you will, into better ideological alignment. And that was ridiculous. And so then I went to Harvard for graduate school. And I was there for about three months. And I realized I had made one of the worst mistakes in my life. I came there to learn about the dark secrets and arts of war. 
And instead I was doing economic problem sets and statistics and Bayesian theory. And I was like, this is crazy. And I was, I was, I was obviously a bit older. I was a, uh, I was a captain. I was, a, I left as a captain in the army. Most of my students were much younger than me and very smart. And uh, then I got a phone call one day and the phone call, I was like running across the yard, Harvard yard to go to a study group. And it was literally like this. We don't, you don't know who we are, but we know who you are. We have a project in Africa that we think you're the right man for. Um, and we want you to drop out of, of your graduate program to help us do it. We will fly you to Dallas tomorrow to brief you on what we want to do if you're interested. And I was thinking, well, I could do two more years of statistics on one hand, or I could go off and do this really cool thing on the other. And so I was like, well, I'll just, so I dropped out of Harvard. And long story short is that they wanted, they were a US company that was a private military co company like Blackwater, but not Blackwater, that wanted me to help them raise um, a, a small army in Africa for US military, which I did. And then I became their man in Africa. And I did other things too, like including stopping an imminent genocide in the Great Lakes region, like Rwanda and Burundi, and doing some other things in the continent and around the continent. And then I left that and did some other things entirely for um, like US oil companies and some other things like that. Um, and so, but I got to this point where I was, I realized that there are no old people in my business. And I realized, what was I doing with my life? Um, and so I decided, to I talked my way back into Harvard. I finished up my graduate program there. And I want to think deeply, just thinking, what does it mean when a lot of things that the CIA and special forces used to do is now outsourced to the private sector, who are in many ways much better at it than the CIA or special forces are? And what is that leading the world? Because it wasn't just the US doing this, it was others doing it, including non governments doing this. And so I ended up going to do a PhD in the School of Economics. This became my book, The Modern Mercenary. And the truth is, is that the, if you really want something secretly done now, you don't have the CIA do it. You turn to the private sector because there are, there, there are laws that, that journalists can use to try to get CIA documentation unclassified, same with the military. But the, but the private sector has none of that. They use this idea of proprietary knowledge, business secrets to, as a curtain to keep back journalists, researchers, anybody who wants to know what they're doing. So if you really want to keep a secret, you go to the private sector. And whether it's the United States of America doing stuff like with me or, or other countries or other people, and look at how Russia is using the Wagner Group. The reason why this is catching on is not because it's just cheaper in the short run, as Alex was asking about, it's because we live in an information age. And in, in an information age, weapons that give you plausible deniability, like mercenaries, are more powerful than raw firepower. I mean, look at the way Putin took over the Crimea. He could have blitzkrieged into Ukraine and taken it. They had a stronger military than Ukraine. But no, what did he use? He used mercenaries like the Wagner Group, he used special forces, that's not, he used little green men, he used uh, these astroturfed 
you know, Russian freedom fighters, which are completely fake, and they use propaganda and active measures. And what he did is he created the fog of war and exploited it for victory. That is modern war. And that's what the new rules of war discusses, is how you win today. It's not World War II style warfare. It's completely different. And there are some things that conventional warriors think World War II will not even recognize as war. And that's that's the secret of its success. And one of those things are mercenaries, because people, conventional warriors and four-star generals think of mercenaries as caricatures, villains of Hollywood. But that's not what they are. They, you know, in 2018, mercenaries almost obliterated America's Delta Force and Rangers in eastern Syria with the United States' best aviation, B-52s, F-15s, and stuff like that. Now, the American forces won after a four-hour fight, but the point is, is that that was against 500 mercenaries. What if it's 5,000 mercenaries and not against Delta Force, but against like a regular military unit? Mercenaries are a lot more sophisticated, a lot more lethal than most people think. And this idea that there's, there's an emerging trend of privatized warfare in the 21st century that nobody's paying attention to, this is one of the biggest insecurity trends of our century. And this is why we're vulnerable to it. And that's what I'm trying to do as a former private military contractor myself, who's gone it's, you know, into the light, if you will, and trying to publicize it. I know stuff that, that researchers cannot get access to. And, um, and that's what I try to bring forth in my writing, both fiction and nonfiction. I do both. You just mentioned at the Blackwater, CIA, Russian little green men, and Russian private military. I'm sure among these, uh, UN Compass, Wagner, Slavonica, Moran. And I think uh, if I start to ask you a question about Blackwater, we will need another couple of podcasts to, to fill the gaps. But please, uh, allow me the last question. And that's basically the question that we are planning to ask to all of our guests. In your opinion, the future of warfare and security management in a complex environment, what is going to look like in the coming 30 years? Well, that's a great question. So it depends who you ask. So I'm in Washington, D.C., and here's the problem in Washington, D.C. Washington and the whole, the quote-unquote West, has Victor's Curse. And what is Victor's Curse? Victor's Curse, you've heard this this, uh, this truism, well, you've heard this saying, perhaps, that generals always fight the last war, especially if they won it. Uh, and this truism happens to be true. So think about um, after World War I, the French had a bad case of Victor's Curse. They had won, and they thought the next big war would look just like the last big war, which was World War I. And they, World War I is trench warfare. And so what did the French invest in as their superweapon? was the Maginot Line, which was basically the biggest, most sophisticated trench warfare system in history. And then warfare had changed. They stood still. The Germans created a new type of warfare called the Blitzkrieg, which easily outflanked the Maginot Line. And what the, what the Germans cannot do in four bloody years of World War I, the French, I mean, the Germans achieved in 40, six days in World War II, they seized Paris. And in some ways, I think the West is stuck in its victor's curse. They think the future of war is gonna look like World War II with better technology. 
So think of Tom Clancy, think of the third offset strategy of the Pentagon, think of what the US is doing. The US is buying nothing but conventional weapons. But the problem is we live in a post-conventional warfare era. So the future of warfare, as I lay out in the, my, my book, The New Rules of War, it'll be one in places like the information domain. In the old rules of war, battlefield victory gave you, you know, determined winners and losers. In the new rules of war, influencing what people think strategically influence. So when was the last time, for example, um, anybody saw a Hollywood movie with China as a villain, right? Nobody can remember that. Well, one of the reasons is that China has influence in Hollywood. They, they buy studios, like legendary pictures. And if you, if, you, um, if you make a movie they don't like, they say you can't show it in China, which is one of the Hollywood's biggest markers, markets. And they're building their own Hollywood in, in China, like Wolf Warrior 1 and 2, which are major movies. Controlling the strategic narrative of, of, of a conflict is tantamount to victory, just like Napoleonic warfare or Klotzfitz was 150 years ago, 200 years ago. If you, war is becoming epistemological, determining truth from lies determines winners and losers now, way before the first shot is fired. And in some ways, warfare is moving from a Klotzfitzian paradigm of force on force to a Sun Tzuian paradigm of trickery and cunning. And those who embrace that will win. Unfortunately, the West, and especially the United States of America, is stuck in the past with Victor's curse. And that's what concerns me most. And that's why I wrote the book, The New Rules of War. John, thank you very much. Please uh, allow me to thank you for this opportunity to start uh, our podcast. We want to start with a bang, uh, and we are really grateful to have you here today. Uh, I would just like now to present to our audience uh, who will be our next guest, uh, that is Jamie Williamson. He is the Executive Director of the Secretariat of the International Code of Conduct Association, ICOCA. ICOCA and the Code of Conduct promote uh, responsible provision of security service and respect for human rights and national and international law. Also, please allow me to thank uh, Eugene Lim from MEI Events Team, and especially Carl Skadian, MEI Director, for his support. And for, that's all for today. Thank you for being with us.